Thank you for tuning in to today's TLDR episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and chief evangelist for Postman, Ken Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore topics from the world of APIs, but look at it through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have Robin Jin, Executive Director at the OpenJS Foundation. Robin stopped by to share more about the importance of the OpenJS Foundation, open source policy, and how it applies across the API lifecycle, exploring the value delivered by the Linux Foundation and its subgroups. I like to start simple, start with the basics. Who are you and what do you do? Great. I'm Robin Bender-Ginn. I'm Executive Director of the OpenJS Foundation. We are an independent foundation hosted at the Linux Foundation, and we are the home for JavaScript and related web technologies. So why, why is OpenJS needed? Why is it important? Well, I think, I mean, we all care about the internet, of course, and having a stable and secure, reliable uh, internet infrastructure is very important. And most people may be surprised to learn that 98% of the world's websites use JavaScript. So you're using JavaScript, whether you know it or not. And some of our projects, Node.js, jQuery, Dojo, Electron, NativeScript, AMP, you know, if one of those goes down, gosh, you're it's more, it's very likely your website may go down, your cloud may go down. So, you know, we take our, our sort of our responsibilities seriously in keeping the internet solid and reliable. Yeah, I think, I, f- I feel like it's the same for me with APIs and, and I'm like, people don't always care about APIs as much as I do. And I'm like, but it's, they're beneath everything. Like your entire life depends on it. And they're like, don't be so dramatic. You know, and I'm like, well, it's true. You know, you should, you should care about these things at least somewhat. And to date, I'm still the only one that's as obsessed about yeah. APIs. Is- <laughs> I feel the same way. People take JavaScript for granted. It's been around 26 years. The web just had, I think it's 33rd birthday. But we celebrate those things because, you know, it's really the people who keep it running. And, you know, if you don't have a, you know, a strong community keeping these things together, uh, then, you know, things, things do fall apart. That doesn't mean that there's not constant innovation. So that's kind of the cool thing about JavaScript is uh, performance and just it, everything gets better all of the time with new technologies. But our legacy technologies are also important and widely used because sometimes you don't need a newfangled thing. You just need something that works for you. Yes. Yes. And so much of the internet, I think we take for granted is, is about that. Just silent things working that, that make things go around today. So before we get into kind of those mechanisms, the technical and the kind of political legal ones, how did you get here? What's your What's your background? What brought you to the Linux Foundation and doing what you do? Yeah, kind of an unconventional path, which, you know, I advocate for in technology. You don't have to be a developer or a coder to get into open source. I kind of grew up as a policy wonk kind of person. I have a journalism degree, so I like to write. And I think writing skills are important for every job. But, you know, when I, growing up in Seattle, the tech companies were obviously born at that time. And so I had sort of my policy kind of wonk sort of experience. 
and then moving into technology, as you often do, if you are born and raised in Seattle, you go from natural resources like airplanes to technology. But I started out doing privacy and security for about a decade and very much the intersection of how society relies on technology and how important that is. And then Microsoft was looking for an open source communications person back in 2008. Interoperability was very important at that time. It was a key part of the antitrust consent decree. So with my tech policy sort of hat, I was hired on to be the first open source PR person at Microsoft. So started working with the open source community projects uh, across the board at that time. I think we had 80 engineering projects um, and I sort of became the encyclopedia of open source at Microsoft. Yeah, it was a great experience doing, you know, watching a company sort of shift and change. Um, but when the Linux Foundation uh, had this opportunity to run OpenJS, um, I sort of jumped on it. So now I get to work for all of the all of the people, all of the companies and communities who care about open source. So it's a great place to be. Mm-hmm. So cutting your teeth at Microsoft, that's an interesting road, especially from the open source realm, because I remember uh, the 90s, late 90s, and very rapidly open source is bad. It's not something you want to do. And then they realized the the business value and the and the importance of it and then changed their tune going into the this century and so and then now leading conversations. So it's definitely an interesting place to I think get your feet under you when when it comes to op- open source. But I wanna yeah. I wanna back backpedal on to because I, I don't wanna assume my audience understands is a policy wonk like you and I'm I'm a policy wonk as well. Like what do you define as policy? What is it? Is it federal, state level? Like, what are you so wonkish about when it comes to policy? And why does why does policy matter? I think it's how um, if I think about it, how something impacts society, right? And often you talk about all politics are local. And if you've ever like taken a look at your maybe your your state legislators, which maybe people don't pay attention to quite so much, that may have more of a direct impact in your life than what's happening in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere. So um, if you care about how something impacts your communities and think about your communities, your family, it's your neighbors, it's your network, it's your school network, your employment network, that all create a, a better sort of place to live and to work and to learn. So that really always really inspired me um, from a policy perspective. Um, And if you think about some of the, you know, there's open source is so many things. It's not just the code on GitHub. There are a lot of people who care about policies and governing and governance around open source projects. And these are communities as well. And you find that it doesn't matter if you live with this company or that company or this street or that street. Everybody has sort of a common goal to make something better. And those boundaries somewhat disappear. Right. And then you just sort of write basically it's almost like a set of rules that are very open and transparent and easy to understand so people can understand how to contribute and make a difference. That was pretty concise. And I think went above and beyond what I what I was trying to get across to listeners, because I'm classic tech bro, neck beard 
programmer, grew up database guy. And I didn't really, I grew up Pacific Northwest as well. I didn't really understand policy and until I moved to DC and started working in DC. And then I didn't see the overlap between technology and, 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 and policy at, at federal state or local levels or how that drives communities, defines and shapes communities. And I mean, I just thought, well, open source is good and it's powerful ideologically. So thus it, it can stand on its own feet. I didn't see everything else is that's needed starting with money and <laughs> to make open source actually sustainable. And yeah. so I think that's what I heard you say is, 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 mm -hmm. is policy really provides that sustainability and that, and what's going to matter to our communities, not just right. our local, but our, our JavaScript community, our, our right. Node.js community. Right. And it's transparency and essentially fairness. I mean, we used to sort of joke, you sit in, when you sit in Seattle or Redmond in my case, and you see a lot of development happening in Silicon Valley and you're not one of the cool kids, right? And we used to think, gosh, okay, we would like to do an open source contribution to WebKit or, you know, X, Y, or Z technology. But if there's not like a an kind of a, what we call governance, which is like a clear way to operate instead of rules that's open and fair to everybody, we're like, gosh, are we not having beers with the right people in Silicon Valley to make my contribution, uh, you know, go through and things like that. And so that's why how we operate at the Linux Foundation and OpenJS and many, many open source projects, they have, you know, sort of what we call open governance. It's open to all. It's transparent. It's kind of like a, a set of rules that make it fair for anybody to contribute. But how do, I mean, open source has a lot of drive-by activity. People just showing up, wanting to contribute, wanting to help, wanting to make a change, and don't always have time to read the rules or understand the governance. So how how does OpenJS deal with that? It's a very warm and welcoming group, I would say. You know, I would think for our, some of our projects, like Node.js, for example, there might be something for a first-time contributor that's easy to do. There's often issues that somebody may experience that is really helpful for the project maintainers. Drive-bys are, are helpful if you really can explain why you want to contribute, what issue you're having, and here's how you replicate it so our project maintainers you know, can know how to address it. But I don't think you have to be a master in governance to contribute. But there's also, if you look at most of our projects too, they operate in the open. That means they stream all of their meetings and our meetings live on YouTube. So you can go to the YouTube channel for our projects or for OpenJS and check it out. You're welcome to be what we love to call lurkers. You're absolutely welcome to come and just hang out. And if you're shy, not say a word, but just, just learn and participate. You learn a lot on our Slack channels lots of different channels to learn there. Our conferences, local community meetups. I think that the JavaScript uh, meetup in Seattle often has, used to have a wait list all of the time um, in Seattle. So that was pretty cool. What's the relationship between OpenJS and Linux Foundation? How, what are the dynamics? How does that work? Yes, we are hosted at the Linux Foundation and we are, but yet we're independent. So we have a board of directors 
who govern the foundation. But the, the Linux Foundation is almost like a foundation of foundations, and it's almost like foundation as a service. So, for example, from a budget perspective, I don't have to buy entire teams or hire entire teams of people. I can just pay for a portion of the finance department and the HR department for the benefit or benefits of the event team just when we need our events, operations, and marketing and things like that. So it really helps our foundation scale like you would a big business, but do so in a really sort of efficient way. Yeah, I think it's those types of resources are really important. And it goes to that toolbox that I don't think us open source folks are going to realize that we're, we're, we need down the road. And we, we passionately start a project. We get traction. We, we, it matures and grows. More people come in and we don't, we, we have to start learning all of these things for ourselves a little and, and having, for me, I've been heavily involved in OpenAPI and Swagger and getting Swagger originally put in and became OpenAPI specification and the, and the formation of the OpenAPI initiative, which is a foundation which in, within the Linux Foundation. Yeah. And so I was running events as part of this early on on my own doing it, and, and it's a lot of work. But then as soon as we joined the OAI, it's like, you got the LF events team and they are good. Like they, like they come in and do all those things that you just hadn't thought about. And it's so, it's got such a, a bit, much better rhythm to it than I ever could bring to the table. And, yeah. and it's really beneficial. I, I yeah. highly recommend folks learning more about it. Absolutely. I had been involved in the Node.js project for about, I don't know, 12 years early on at, the, at Microsoft before it became a foundation and it was a Node JS advisory group. And we had a marketing subcommittee saying we were doing events and things like that. But once it moved to the Linux Foundation, just created sort of this professional services model around it on people who get open source and get community and also bringing in more of the industry around it to support that as well, which is important. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of moving back to kind of the, the legal part of of doing open source and what it is like in expanding people's knowledge i think who are listening to this is, is licensing you think about i'm licensing code but there's so much more to the the legal dimensions of what is open source that i've learned since joining and being part of the linux foundation so let's focus on node.js like node.js is established language well i mean there's been several community rifts and, and things going on that are political but it's established, it's ubiquitous, like what sort of shifts or changes or things that are needed to, to from a licensing and from a, an, a support standpoint, does Node.js still yeah. need at this point in time? Yeah, you know, we have, um, we have some flexibility with all of our projects on, on licenses, as long as they have an OSI approved license. And then we have, you can use either a CLA or a DCO for a contribution license. Mm -hmm. But a big um, part of the sort of the legal issue that we were um, thinking about with Node.js was the trademark. And, you know, when a project joins the foundation or it's contributed to the foundation, often you donate the IP, which is that trademark. And you wonder why are trademarks important? Well, a trademark really designates not just the brand and the logo, but it's like the source code like the, you know, legitimate source code. And also, it also designates sort of that kind of community 
blessing, I would say, around it. Now, what had um, happened with Node.js is back, it was always a part of Joyent, which was then acquired by Samsung. And as you mentioned, that there was a fork, and then with the Node.js that became IOJS, but then the communities decided to come back together when they created the Node Foundation. But when they did that, Joyent retained ownership of the trademark, and then the community operated everything else under the foundation. But what Joyent just recently did is they realized that the OpenJS Foundation was just so stable and the community is so stable, they donated the trademark back to OpenJS. And that happened, what, last month? Um, And that, just from a a practical matter, um, it means like if somebody is doing, for example, training around Node.js, then, you know, it's they would have to come to us to get permission to use the trademark. And then we could just validate that it's, yes, that's a credible training organization. Or say somebody wants to go raise money on Open Collective for Node.js. You want any money being raised to be sort of part of the direction of the technical steering committee for Node.js. So it's more than branding. It's really that sort of legitimacy of the source code. So the community was quite excited when it came back because um, Joint always really managed the trademark very well. They sat on our board, but it was just nice to sit in a neutral home like OpenJS. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. I think these are the things a lot of developers and tech folks don't think about as they're building these projects and getting traction and growing in scope and scale and, and are caught off guard down the road when they, when these, these rifts happen or these, these schisms or separations that they don't really grasp the full impact of, of copyright. It's not something we think a lot about. And I, I learned a lot about it when the Oracle v. Google copyright case and, 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 that I got a crash course on that. So, uh, but trademark and you're just not, you're not thinking much about that. So that, that joint relationship, like how, how much of your work as a, as a foundation and open source is managing relationships with corporations and trying to balance that, that open source and commercial aspect. I'd say the majority of my work is with the community because if the community's happy, then my board of directors are happy and the foundation is running well. So we try to develop programs that support our communities to help the projects grow um, and which in turn provides more stability and growth um, as well. So, you know, we have a, a really clear line between paid members, those corporations who sit on our board um, and the community. Um, and the community, we have an umbrella organization called the Cross Cross Project Council. That's like a technical oversight committee at some of these other umbrella foundations. Um, and then you have all of your projects, JSON Schema, for example, that Postman is supporting, which we really appreciate. And what we do is, as an umbrella organization, each project is enabled to operate very independently. And then we have at the Cross Project Council, some some key sort of requirements that they operate kind of cross projects. So think about your code of conduct or governance or events, um, anything else that sort of cuts across that supports everybody. So when you think about how much time do I spend? Yes, I think if you're a paid member and you sit on our board, 
They help set direction, uh, manage our budgets and things like that. But it's really, and a lot of those corporations have people working in the projects and the community. That's obviously why typically they become a member of OpenJS. So, but there are benefits on being a member. We do spend probably more time with some of those companies. We work on features and case studies. We just featured, for example, our board member from Netflix. And Netflix is using Node.js and think about the scale at which they do that. They also have people in the community as well on the technical steering committee, for example, of Node.js. So it it's kind of goes both ways, you know, on different different aspects. Yeah. So how does how do companies get involved in, in what's going on at OpenJS? I mean, I'm assuming, like you said, Netflix, they have some sort of skin in the game. They're wanting to to influence yeah. and be part of this. But how do how does a company get involved? Well, as much as I think people would want me to, like, sell memberships right now, I think the best thing a company could do is to allow your your developers, employees or people in marketing. Microsoft allowed me as in who sat in the marketing department to work on open source during business hours. Um, most companies are relying on open source. And probably every company is using open source software. Um, it shouldn't be an after-school activity, right? It should be a core part of your business. If you're building your business with an open source project, I would encourage companies to allow their employees to work on those projects during business hours. That's the greatest contribution that you, know, that you can do as a corporate, any, you see startups, mid-sized, big companies, uh, all supporting that. So we're funded by our members. And so we like that as well, or through sponsorships at our events. So that all helps us do, do more as well. And of course, the more members we have, the more programs we can offer to those projects. Yeah, I think that employee exposure, team exposure to open source, not just technologies, but processes, I think, puts them on a better career path, but also strengthens your internal open source catalog in a way that, mm -hmm. I mean, I think Log4j is probably the this year's poster child of this. Like how many people didn't know that Log4j was in their stack before this year? And yeah. so like, and that was one of the, the catalysts behind me pushing for JSON schema to, to get put into OpenJS was I had spent time at a, at a large uh, enterprise and then several government agencies. And I had asked them, I said, how are you validating your API re requests and responses as part of this, this work consulting work? And they said, Oh, well, we, uh, uh, well, I'd ask, I'd say, do you use JSON schema to validate things? And he said, no, no, we don't use JSON schema. We use AJV to validate things. And we create these config files. And I was like, well, wait, that's JSON schema that you're using. And so they weren't aware that they were using JSON schema and they didn't really have much knowledge about the open source tool they were using. And, yeah. and this was pretty ubiquitous. So it kind of concerned me that people weren't seeing JSON schema or let alone understanding the role AJV played in their catalog. So yeah, and AJV is also an open JS project. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Very important one. And, mm -hmm. You'd be surprised. I often, uh, not often, but occasionally get emails from government agencies and procurement asking me a lot of questions like we are a commercial proprietary product. So there's there's definitely a gap. And I know tech companies are great places to work at and work for, but I would encourage technologists to go work in government as well. I think it's quite impressive. There's a lot of work happening in security in governments and 
at our foundation as well. So yeah, I can't second that enough. It's life changing. My work, my timing in federal government changed this. How do I say it? The Pacific Northwest libertarian 180 degrees changed me how I see the world, how I see people working together or not working together. And so understanding technology at that scale and how it's being used, I think, is is, is something everybody should go work. You should take time and, and go work in government and then come back to see because yeah. it'll it'll change you. Yeah, last month or earlier earlier this month, I spoke on a panel at South by Southwest, and at the speaker dinner, I sat next to a technologist and program manager from the State Department, and she was on a panel with the European Union talking about tech policy. And so, what's really cool to hear from them is how the coordination at the global level on policy, and you're talking cloud and all kinds of things. It's just so international. So yeah, I mean, she could work anywhere in the world. And I think it's pretty cool that she's working at the State Department as that sort of EU li- liaison. So some really great work happening there. Yeah, I you learn so much. It's not just about the technology. It's about everything around it and, and how it serves mm-hmm. people. So definitely recommend folks spend time in, in, uh, in service little, doing that. A little so tour, how did yeah. How was South by Southwest this year? How how was that experience? It was uh, it was cool. I had never been before, and if you're not familiar with it, it is a music festival, film festival, and then there's a tech conference and an education conference. And so I had a yeah. panel on the tech conference titled um, "Is the Internet Really Rotting?" And it was about you know, and it was really sparked from a a cover story in the Atlantic that Jonathan Zittrain wrote. He's at the Harvard Berkman Center in Harvard Law about the decay of the web. Um, a lot on link rot, content drift, and but then, of course, the content moderation and all of those things. So that we had a panel. We had Todd Moore from IBM, who is on our board, and Chris Anacek, who's the CTO of the Linux Foundation. So we we had it and we had a lot of interesting questions from the audience too, but I think that Jonathan at Harvard may have started out more pessimistic, but for us, technology is very, it's human, right? Because we work with open source and we work with folks and standards and we just work with companies, people from so many companies, as I mentioned earlier. So I think we, we convinced him that things are not as dire as maybe predicted, but yeah, his premise is with, you know, there is no CEO of the internet. There's no grand librarian. So if no one's in charge, who's in charge? Well, as we mentioned earlier, it's a lot of these loosely knit, but openly governed groups of folks working in open source and open standards. So. Yeah. Well, South by is an interesting that I had, I'd always thought of as a music festival until I went and my, my wife and partner in crime, she's in education. So I ended up speaking at a tech event, but then went there earlier for the education piece and the techs wedged in between education and music. And so it spent the whole time there. Um, and it was a eye-opening experience to, to yeah. I would say, see how the, how educators see and, and librarians see technology. I found that very uh, educational as well. And then just the diverse tech folks that, 
uh, descend on 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 South by. It's not your usual Silicon Valley crowd, like you said, State Department, European Commission stuff like that. So yeah, academics, creative folks from all industries, and I think I I spend most of my time with developers. So it was really. It was a good reminder right on how technology touches everyone. But yeah, I miss the music. They have the tech on the front end of the conference and music on the back end. But um, I did see Lizzo give a keynote, not sing. Um, And of course, she's all about self-love and body positivity. So yeah, goosebump moments watching Lizzo for sure. Talk very empowering. Yeah, I, I'm guessing she can really get a crowd going and and yeah. get people behind her. That's great. Yeah, she did sing. But yeah, and you know, as you know, for me, I've been around for a long time, a woman in tech. It's not always, it wasn't, e- really wasn't easy back then. It's getting a little bit better, but you know, you still have sexism, you have ageism, all kinds of things. So it is empowering to have people like Lizzo or people like all the women I've worked for over the years, you know, kind of inspire you and give you that confidence boost that you need that pep talk. Yeah. Yeah. We need more of that in open source. I mean, tech in general, but I know we're working hard at that as part of the open API initiative and the async API conference or wait, no ask API specifications conference. Sorry, too many acronyms floating around in my head sometimes, but the API specifications conference is, we're really working hard on 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 that mix of speakers and sticking hard to having a, a diverse set of voices on stage. And so I think always looking for interesting ways of letting women know and and globally that there's a, a space for them in the open source community and we need them helping you know uh, define what's going on, despite as some of the the groups, I think some of the technical steering committees are heavily male dominated. Like mm-hmm. we need to find ways to get more, more women involved because it's, it's critical. Yeah. I used to like to tell people I was an open source contributor and they'd look at me, they go like, really, you're, you sit in marketing, like what? And I you know, sort of had that self doubt too, but I remember it was 2000. When was it? It was like 2017. I was at the Linux foundation summit conference and Linus Torvalds was doing his Q&A with Dirk that he often does. And he said something that really sort of struck me. He said, you know, at the end of the day, it's users that really matter for an open source project um, because without users, you're, you're nowhere. So it's the Q&A, it's the documentation, it's everything that, you know, drives adoption. And I was like, hey, I do that, you know, so and if that's, you know, and that was really for me, I mean, it took a long time, even though I had been blogging for years about open source technologies, but you have that sort of that imposter syndrome if you don't code, right? That you're not really a contributor. So yeah, everybody can what, be a contributor. Yeah. So was it, was it that, that mix of storytelling and, and validation from others in the space? Like what pushed you over that line where you realize it's like that line between where you're like, you see traffic on the road or you're like, Oh wait, I'm traffic, you know? And so what's yeah. that line that you reached? I mean, was it just naturally got to get there? Or was it, I mean, him saying that, oh, that no. pushed you over? I said I had, you know, I had worked in, well, I had worked on open source since 2008. So this is what, probably what, nine, nine years later, it took me a long time. And then, but there's still people who sort of perpetuate that concept, even women. Like I heard somebody say I was born in the wrong decade. 
right? Where, you know, and you could have said the same thing about me, right? I was really great at science and math, but I went into journalism. So if I was born decades later, maybe someone say, hey, STEM program, go do tech. Um, But it's okay because tech needs writers and they need creative people and they need lawyers, as we talked about. They need community organizers. All of those things don't involve coding. Selena Torvald says it's the users that really matter. So, Yes. Previous episodes, I just finished recording University of North Carolina teaching lawyers about APIs and giving them the tech chops they need. And and these aren't just lawyers who are going to be working on tech policy. This is just as a lawyer, what you need to get information. And then yesterday I did a Pia from the open collective. She joined me and she was awesome. Talk and she's talking about the, the intersection of open source, uh, the money side, the legal side, but, and then social justice and, and taking care of people and like how their mechanisms have gone from supporting open source to they've given $1.2 million to in thousand dollar increments to Ukrainians to survive and, and keep them going, you know, and how they've turned that machine in this direction in the last couple of weeks. I found that yeah. very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, we see, yeah, in addition to Ukraine, we've seen, you know, issues happening in Texas, for example, and unfortunately rolling out across states that are highly discriminatory against groups of people. Um, and so I was sort of proud to sign a letter with Jim Zemlin and Chris Anacek at the Linux Foundation calling to stop discrimination in not only just Texas, but other states across the country. And we signed on to the human rights campaign as well. And yeah, we're, you know, we're hosting our event in Texas and some folks, and this is in June, and some folks understandably are not comfortable traveling to yeah. Texas. So we're creating more opportunities for virtual participation, but we did feel it was really important to use our voice as the OpenJS Foundation, as the Linux Foundation to say, hey, this is just not okay. Um, yeah. We need to stop, roll those back. Do you feel like that's the next frontier of, I mean, I haven't, stop to think about this too deeply. So excuse me, but like, feels like we're on several waves, you know, if I had to put a version on it, three or four version, three or four of open source here, you know, we had the original Linus, you know, Linux and, and then GitHub. And now, do you feel like this kind of intersection with social justice and advocacy is, is part of the future DNA of, of open source tech? Well, I, I think so. If I think about like, what's our mission? Our mission is healthy communities, right? To drive an open and healthy web. And um, I think one of my board, former board members, Miles said, you know, APIs, apologies, can get deprecated. People don't. Yes. So true. So, and some people say, oh, you should stay out of politics. Well, human rights have become political, unfortunately. So where do you draw the line, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and you do see, it is amazing, again, if you're, um, and you want to advocate for inclusive communities, diverse communities, and in doing so, drive that culture and using your voice globally, I think is really important. Yeah, agreed. And, And I think that open source, I mean, well, first off, APIs, I don't love APIs as much as I put on as part of the performance. APIs are a, a vehicle for me to 
get engaged in interesting conversations and travel around the world and talk to European Commission and do interesting things. And so uh, APIs are totally disposable and should be deprecated. It's, it's they're not what matters. Um, but don't tell all my my followers and fans that. Um, <laughs> but I really feel like the open source, like the the role that tech plays, the licensing, the policy. I mean, that's why I think your your policy wonk, wonkishness is is compelling, and I encourage other folks to if if their policy wonks like come come get involved in open source, come get involved in tech because um, it's behind everything, every industry, every sector. It's influencing every aspect of our lives, and without folks defending this space, it's it's not as open and not as inclusive and not as, and it's still going to be powering all of these political issues that, that you hear about tech is technology is very political, whether people want us to be quiet or not. So, yeah. And we are global, right? We are everywhere. So, but you do, you want to take your sort of your norms and your progressive norms and spread that globally. So I mean, I think you do see that in probably in every country. Unfortunately, their governments may not operate that way. So, yeah, hopefully we can be a, a, a good, strong, positive voice in that. Yeah. How has COVID changed, changed your reality as far as what you do running OpenJS? You know, OpenJS and even the Linux Foundation was remote before COVID. Of course, where our, our conferences went virtual, but... Because we come from so many different countries, companies, and walks of life, we've always been virtual. But for me, it kept me going. We have Tuesdays, our community calls. You should check out. We have a public calendar. We kind of have a lot of fun. Some people hate meetings. Well, you would love our meetings because <laughs> we, always have, <laughs> we always have a lot of fun. So I think it, it made us even more, it made us stronger, I think, because we were sort of used to that, but, but because then it it really did become sort of that cross industry bright spot. Of course, we missed our events. Um, and so June will be, will be pretty great. I, I've been learning over the years that Java, the JavaScripters love their karaoke. So <laughs> they're sort of infamous for these all nighters. So we're going to have Texas live band karaoke at our conference in June, but I have gone to a couple of in-person conferences since things have started to open up and, Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty special to go face to face again for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh I'm just my team I run developer uh, relations for Postman's one of the programs I run in addition to the open tech stuff and I started sending DevRel folks to their first events and they were just jazzed and and it, it was like all right we're back and that human interaction human connection yeah. was was very needed i mean we're still being very safe and cautious and thoughtful but it's it's a big part of what we do it's how we make this human by getting together and and sharing right. you know sharing the knowledge so that's right yeah i think i used to say when i was at microsoft most of those open source partnerships and business collaborations we made on the sponsor floor in those booths, as well as sort of some lifelong friends as well. I would say also for me, I know a lot of women in tech sort of stuck together at that time too. So yeah. some great girlfriends I have, but yeah, year after year, when you get to meet in person, it's pretty nice. So yeah. So we'll, we'll be having yeah, think- uh, our event is June 6th through 10th in Austin. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. And then hopefully as the world opens up even more and we grow, then we can start supporting more regional events. And I know some of our folks 
do some wonderful regional things as well, like Nearform has an event in Ireland and there's lots of others. Uh, I just talked to the JS Comp folks in Mexico. They sent me a t-shirt, which was super cool. Since I actually, and I think I told you, Ken, I live half the year in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Nice. So yeah, that was super cool to be, I watched part of their, uh, their conference as well. So yeah, and it's those. I mean, it's the memories, the the swag memories, the connections. Those, that's what this is all about. I think is yeah. is really connecting the dots on all those and having wearing that shirt at home and knowing having those memories associated with it. It's it's yeah. important. Do you know what your oldest shirt is? Oh me, like, yeah, <laughs> I I cycle through them pretty rapidly because I used to, I got started in the music industry and I used to collect tour shirts and, and, uh-huh. and wear them until they get big holes in them. And, and then uh-huh. I went through that phase with tech conferences. I, so I cycle through, I don't have anything over a year old. I wear them and I wear them like consistently, like that's all I'll wear is like the same three shirts. And then I, I ditch them. So, yeah, I know I was cycle. starting to get them for my, for my two boys. And then I, then I see him wearing a cool shirt later. I'm like, why did I give that to them? there's a few that grab me and then other swag stickers i still really like my stickers and my other desktop things that i i collect some of them stick with me some of them don't so swag's interesting that way thanks for coming i appreciate the time and uh love talking i have to get together with you and talk policy stuff more get get all wonky sometime but i think i'll wait till one of the in-person events and and so we can meet in person but and you need i need to meet your more of your postman friends as well ben has been pretty awesome having in our community and you as well so appreciate all the support we get from you all yeah well i'm i'm continuing to evolve our strategy and, and and how we're investing and I want to get to know the OpenJS kind of what's what's already in motion and figure out how we how we can jump in and, and contribute more to what's already happening out. The AJV AJV is very critical to our yeah. our operations, and I want to I want to understand that more. So so there'll be more to come. Awesome, appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Robin. Yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks again to Robin for stopping by. You can find more about OpenJS at openjsf.org, and you can find Robin on LinkedIn. You can subscribe to the Break and Changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes. I'm your host, Ken Lane, and until next time, cheers.